I'm Claire Siegel, co-founder and CEO of Flourish. Femtech to me is recognizing that women's health is so much more than getting pregnant and losing weight. Femtech is about creating solutions that are uniquely designed to meet the mental, emotional, and physical health needs for all who identify as women. Welcome to Femtech Focus with Dr. Brittany Barreto, exploring the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. Welcome to the Femtech Focus podcast, where we have meaningful and provocative conversations with femtech experts. These academics, doctors, and innovators tell us about the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. I'm your host, Dr. Brittany Barreto, and in today's interview, I interview Claire Siegel, the co-founder and CEO of Flourish. Flourish is a wellness platform that helps women get healthy for good, with zero focus on weight loss or food tracking. Diet culture is so deeply embedded into the American psyche that it is difficult to find programs and platforms that don't subscribe to a diet approach to wellness. Claire Siegel is a registered dietitian and knows firsthand how damaging yo-yo dieting can be, both physically and emotionally. After battling 10 years with diets, food, health, and body image issues, Claire founded Flourish as the first truly non-diet platform, where she helps women heal from diet culture and sustain healthy habits that align with their values through accountability, community, and education. To learn more, visit weflourish.com. Our listeners get a special offer, one week free trial on the platform, and one free coaching consultation. Use the link in the show notes to access this offering. Click the link, create an account, and voila, you are well on your way to flourishing. Enjoy the episode. Hey, Claire, welcome to the show. Hi, Brittany. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. Um, so we're, you're based in Austin, right? Yep, I am. Getting ready for South by Southwest. Getting ready for South by Southwest and uh, yeah, I'm charging my social battery before, you know, what's going to be probably a pretty insane week. Yeah, seriously. And you're hosting a period party, you say? Yes, we're hosting it. So I'm um, working with Kate from Funkin, who's a previous podcast guest. We have a panel happening on Saturday, March 11th. That's all about the science of eating for your menstrual cycle. And we figured we should kick it off with a period party. So the day before, or no, two days before on Thursday, um, yeah, we're hosting a period party at Kate's office and it's going to be super fun. So assuming that by the time this goes live, we're pre-period party, we'll, we'll put a link in the show notes or something yes, like that. Perfect. Good, good, yeah. good. That sounds so fun. Well, we love to kick every episode off with learning more about our guest. So please tell us a little bit more about where you're from. What did you study? What was your career before this? And how did you end up here as co-founder, CEO of Flourish? Yeah. Should I talk a little bit about what Flourish is first? We'll get there. We'll okay. get there. Uh, uh, we always want to know you first. So often right. I feel like we, not that we hide, but we're kind of like diluted by this company brand, you know? And yeah. And we have humans listening, not companies okay. listening. So Claire, Beautiful. own the space, own it, and tell us <laughs> who you are. Okay, awesome. Yeah, I mean, I will say in some ways, the company is like very autobiographical, so I will I will do what I can. But um, 
Yeah, I'm, I'm Claire, living in Austin. I am a registered dietitian by trade, um, and how I kind of got to where I am today starts again, like way back. Um, I went on a diet for the first time when I was just 13 years old. My mom put me on Weight Watchers, and for me, like growing up in a larger body as a child was, was really formative um, in many different ways, but I spent over 10 years of my life on basically every diet you can name, especially the ones that were really popular in like the 90s and early 2000s. And it took, you know, that process for me to learn that health is so much more than nutrition and and exercise, you know, what you eat and how many calories you burn, that there's this huge emotional and social component of health. Um, And so I went through that phase, actually became a registered dietitian when I was still deep in dieting. I was studying, um, I had a really weird combination of majors. I studied plan two and nutrition at the university of Texas at Austin plan two is like this really weird, but cool liberal arts program. So I had like a very general liberal arts experience paired with like the science of nutrition, um, became a registered dietitian and then started a very non-conventional career. I would say I spent the first four years of my career actually, um, at snap kitchen, which is a CPG based startup here or CPG startup based here in Austin, uh, spent the first few years at snap as their lead registered dietitian working on a number of things, but you know, uh, menu planning, nutrition analysis, nutrition standards for the brand. I was also their spokesperson. I also like content strategy and, and that's really where I kind of like got the startup bug and got more exposure into the business world than I probably should have at the age of like 24, 25, but it was, it was awesome. Um, and then when snap started creating their digital product, their meal planning app and an e-commerce app, I shifted into a product role before I ultimately kind of, um, bit the bullet and quit my job and started what then ultimately became flourish. Amazing. That's so funny for me to think of Snap as a startup because like I, you know, living in Texas, I was like, oh no, that's just like a store where you stop to get food at, you know, like to think of it as a startup is kind of crazy to me. I know it's funny. I, I don't know if they would still refer to themselves as a startup, but certainly <laughs> when I was there, it, we, we definitely had like a lot of startup in us. Based on how many hats you just said you wore. Yeah. I would say it was a startup. <laughs> so it was a fun start. What is Flourish? Yeah. So Flourish is a women's mind, body health solution. So we help women improve their relationship with food and body image so that they can sustain truly health promoting behaviors. And the order that I just shared that is really important in the experience and lives of our members. A lot of us subconsciously or not associate dieting behaviors with health promoting behaviors when in actuality, a lot of those behaviors are even disordered in nature and create a really vicious cycle. So we help women make peace with food and their bodies so they can actually sustain healthy habits. Um, And we do that through our subscription membership that offers our members access to credentialed health experts, primarily within nutrition and psychology. Um, We have a a great community aspect to the work that we do. And then we also have our evidence-based curriculum to provide kind of like that, that, clarity in what is obviously very cluttered and noisy world. Is it a self-guided curriculum or is there a coach? Yes. So 
It is the curriculum is currently self-guided, although I will say we've got some exciting developments happening there. But um, the coaching piece of, of the Flourish experience is really, I would say, where the magic happens. And so you said that you were at SNAP when you kind of then started what turned into be Flourish. Tell us why yeah. and when did you start this? What was the catalyst? Yeah, so I wish I could say that when I, so this was 2018 when I left SNAP and started my own business. Um, I wish I could say I had like this clarity of vision and just this passion that I couldn't let go of. But really, I have long had the entrepreneurial itch. I started blogging back in like 2011 when it was like really weird to blog. No one did it. Um, so I've always kind of had this thing about me and I had kind of been feeling like, okay, I think my time here is maybe coming to an end. And I really wanted to work for myself. I just had this like very glamorized understanding of what it was going to be like to quote unquote work for myself. <laughs> yeah. And now I'm like, I work for my investors. I work for my customers. <laughs> I work for my team. Like I have more bosses than I've ever had man. before. Yeah. Exactly. But anyway, um, so I, I quit my job with no plan. I thought I'll do a little copywriting. I'll do a little nutrition analysis for like small CPG brands in the city. And like, I'll probably do some nutrition coaching on the side because I'm a registered dietitian. And then I stumbled across the, a business coach. It was like a five or $6,000 business coaching program. I do not know what possessed me to fork over that kind of cash when I was like literally on my last paycheck, but I did it. And through that process, I learned, I learned sales. I learned so many different things. And so what I ultimately did was basically right after leaving my full-time job, I started a 12 week nutrition coaching program. And I sold 10 spots within the first month and then we started like four weeks later and I was like, okay, well, I guess I'm going to build this program while I deliver it. Um, which again was not part of the plan, but I, I actually support the notion of like sell, sell the thing, ensure that there's demand, ensure that you're actually solving a problem and then figure out how to build it. <laughs> Literally, that is the advice I gave a founder the other day who wants to sell um, sexual education content to yeah. charter schools. And she yeah. said, well, some of them are interested. So do I build it and then give it to them? And I, and I was like, you should probably just start to engage and see how they yeah. react and continue to build accordingly. Cause you don't want to build a whole thing that then they exactly. say, Oh, we don't like this part. And you're like, damn it. We talk about it in every lesson, you know, or exactly. whatever. So, oh my yeah. gosh. I, yeah. So the, the kind of three pillars, the coaching community curriculum has always kind of been part of what we do. And I remember the second time I delivered this 12 week program, I got the curriculum professionally filmed. And then a month later I was like, I'm redoing the whole curriculum. Yeah. And that was such a valuable lesson for me. But yeah. When I started this 12-week program, I thought it was going to be teaching women how to eat more vegetables and like eat less ice cream. Yeah. And come to find out, nearly every woman that joined, it was called Nutritional Freedom at the time, nearly every woman that joined Nutritional Freedom had a very similar story to me. And they really struggled with body image. They dieted during formative childhood years. And I started to learn, oh, it's not really about the food. There is this psychological component. And if I can't figure out how to meet that need, I'm not truly solving women's problems. So I started bringing in mindset coaches at that time. We grew very quickly. And I also started to notice this other thing that the women coming to me also had experience with these billion dollar diet tech companies. And I thought, okay, if they're going to those companies and coming to me with more problems than they started with, I think 
one, this problem is much bigger than my little company can handle. But if I can figure out how the tech component, then we can really scale and create a solution that will change the lives of truly millions of women. And so that's when we started the transition from nutritional freedom to flourish to now a, a venture backed, you know, women's femtech health company. Love <laughs> it. Let's dive a little bit into some of these keywords that you're using. So first, yeah. first diet. I, yeah. I find it interesting that you call yourself a dietitian and I never really thought like, oh my God, wait, diet is in that. Like instead of nutritionist, what's the difference yeah. between a dietitian, nutritionist and what is a diet? Yeah. So this is a, yeah, the dietitian nutritionist debate is, is so interesting. So uh, nutritionist is actually not a like credentialed term anyone in the world can call themselves a nutritionist without any, you know, legal ramifications, without any, any credentials, right? For someone to be called a dietitian, or actually what you'll hear more often now is a dietitian nutritionist. That's like the rebrand solution we came up with, which I, it's just too long. Um, but anyway, uh, that means that someone has a four-year degree in nutrition. I believe now you also have to get a master's in nutrition. That was not the case when I was going through school. And then you have to complete an accredited internship. And then you take an exam and then there's continuing education, you know, hours and, and all those things. And you also... Um, have to be licensed in your state. There's that much to know about nutrition. <laughs> I'm thinking of all the credit hours. I'm like, there's that many lessons. You know, it's really interesting because I mean, my, certainly my education was very science focused. So I took biology, physiology, organic chemistry, biochemistry. So there's a lot of that. But to answer your question, what I've learned in practice has been that what we know about nutrition is actually quite simple, but all the noise that we experience from largely diet culture makes it not easy. Yeah. And adding to that is our relationships with food, again, are not about the food. There's so many different emotional, social, cultural, historical kind of inputs to that that again, the facts are, are easy about nutrition. Like I actually don't think like nutrition is all that complicated. We've made it very complicated. And then again, there's this whole other set of factors that go so far beyond just what's on our plates. Well, that actually brings me to my question. The next term I want us to kind of dive into is body image. Um, I struggle with negative body image. Yeah. I have an amazing, amazing boyfriend, amazing partner but he does not understand when I tell him, I don't feel like I look good in this. I don't think that will fit me. Like if he holds yeah. up a shirt, I'm like, that won't fit me. And he's like, I actually think this is even too big for you. Like, yeah. what? you know, and he, he really can't grasp. He's like, what do you mean? You don't see what I see. And I'm like, I don't know, dude, like it's beer goggles and I, I it's crazy. I don't know yeah. how it works, but I know it's legitimate something I work through. So tell us what is body image? Yeah. So body image is is complex because it's so much more than what you see in the mirror. And that's why you can go from having a good body image day to a bad body image day with like one thing. I don't know if you've ever tried on clothes in the Nordstrom dressing room that I'll have a bad body image day after that, even though my body hasn't changed in the, you know, two seconds in which I saw myself in the mirror, right. Or going bathing suit shopping or, trying on a dress that you thought was going to fit and it doesn't fit or making even seeing someone else's body 
can cause you to have a bad body image day. Yeah, I have right. a lot of French friends, and they these girls eat brie like by the spoonful, and yeah. they're so skinny, you know. And yeah. so sometimes I find myself in my little potluck parties, being like, "Oh God, how can they be so skinny and have a plate that full?" Right? And so yeah, yeah, yeah. So with with body image, there's there's multiple components of it, right? There is the way that you perceive your body image, either when you see a photo, you look in the mirror, um, things like that. There's the, the thoughts that you have about your body based on that input. There are the feelings that you have about your body and, and the way it looks. And then there are the behaviors that you either engage in or don't engage in based on that. And those different components of body image all impact one another. And that's why, again, body image is really complex and why you and your partner can have completely different perceptions of what your body is. Mm -hmm. What is the history here of diet culture and body image? Is body image a 21st century issue or like, do we have any records of Egyptians feeling insecure? Like what, when did this all start? Yeah. I'd love to start with just like a I think a working definition of what diet culture is because it's more than just like South beach diet, for example, like diet culture is actually a belief system. Okay. And in this belief system is the belief that thinness and appearance matter more than our mental and physical well-being. And there's often kind of this like moral high ground within diet culture, right? Thinking that like, if I'm smaller, then I'm better than other people who are bigger. And if I'm smaller, then I'm bigger, then I'm better than me before who was bigger. So there's kind of like also there's like the health superiority, but there's also the moral superiority as, as well. And so it's, it's not just being on a diet. Um, it's really this, this system of beliefs. I'll share a quick story. Sorry, yeah. personal topic. Usually, like the menopause topics, I don't have it as many stories. Sure. <laughs> the topic right. of stories. So there was. Um, I used to see girl women, you know, uh, that I would perceive as very fit, especially if they were in like yoga pants, and I assumed they were on their way to like spin class or something. I mm-hmm. think in my brain, they're they they're so skinny, and they must be so happy. And I finally had to tease that apart, like. No, how am I, how am I assuming she's happy? Nothing about this is telling me she's happy. So I started to, when I would have that thought, I would say, well, Brit, you know, skinny girls cry too. And I mean, I don't know if that's necessarily the most healthiest way to sure. change my mindset, but I had to start to do that because I immediately was like, they're skinny and happy, period. And it was like, no, yeah. they're skinny and cry too. <laughs> I think it's, yeah, it's really interesting because yes, that is true. And also things like weight stigma and weight discrimination exist. And so I think it's, um, it's enticing in a world that is in some ways becoming more body positive to feel like, I guess that body image is kind of like a level playing field. And you're absolutely right. Like people can struggle with body image regardless of size body image struggles and being engaged with diet culture is, is size agnostic. (laughs) And it is harder to exist in the world. If you're in a larger body, like whether you're being States or any country you think, I think, you know, that's an interesting question. Certainly in the United States. And I would say certainly in like the Western world, um, 
I'm sure there are places in the world I don't know of any off the top of my head that are more, we'll call it weight inclusive. Um, but I mean, even, even just the way the world is set up, right? Like the size of airplane seats and things like that, not to mention the, the social discrimination, um, you know, in the, in the medical world, weight discrimination is a very real thing. We know that people in larger bodies don't get as high quality healthcare. They also don't go get healthcare in the same way because of that. It's a, it's a very vicious cycle. So anyway, I think it's, body image is complex, right? Bodies are, are complex. Body size is complex. And um, what I hope with Flourish is that we're having a more like complete and nuanced conversation around, around bodies that those of us who are in smaller bodies can struggle with body image. And we can recognize that that is actually a, a secondary to diet culture, to fat phobia, to all that we're actually all suffering within these systems and, and belief systems regardless of body size and that those of us who are in larger bodies have it the worst. Uh, does this disproportionately affect women? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it's really hard to tease apart diet culture from the patriarchy. <laughs> and you really only need to kind of look at women's beauty standards throughout time to see that, that women's beauty standards, which again are very, very, you know, they're in bed with diet culture and the diet industry. They've changed throughout time so much. Even in my lifetime, beauty standards have changed, right? I remember when I was a young girl going through my diet phase, like I wanted to look like Nicole Richie and uh, the Mary, you know, the Olsen twins, these tiny, tiny little figures. Now the Kardashians and their curvy bodies yeah. are more the beauty standard, right? I and so just talking about this with my friends that we were comparing mean girls where they were like yes. twigs, little itty bitty twigs. You could see their hip bones. They were straight yeah. as a pencil. And now you have like Mary J. Blige, you know, with these thick, powerful legs. And, and it's like, well, what the hell y'all, what, what should I do? What should it be? Right. Exactly. No, I think when beauty beauty standards and health standards, which again, in our world have just sort of become one, when that is a moving target, there's always going to be someone who loses. When there's only one or two kind of acceptable body types, there's so many people who are left outside of that, of that picture. I think that, you know, I'm a big proponent for men experiencing a lot of these issues too right and yeah. so like the this idea of you should be well hung you know yeah. you have muscles you yeah. should have a thick chest you should be able to skip leg day but still have not chicken legs for men yeah and i have some compassion for them as well but totally. you're saying that this disproportionately affects women well like how why how like what do we know like what is it just because men are the eye of the beholder of marketing and messaging? And that's how it's, you know, it's been, I don't know, like, do we know the answer? <laughs> yeah, I don't know that we exactly know the answer. I certainly know that, and, and you know, that women are, you know, the largest kind of consumers of wellness, and they're the decision makers when it comes to these things. And again, when we've like sort of conflated, when dieting and wellness have become the same thing, I think that's how we get to this place. And what we're here to do with Flourish is to say, like, no, dieting and wellness are not the same thing. Like, dieting is actually the antithesis of wellness and health and well-being. And we have to right the, the ship. Um, so, yeah, it's an interesting kind of, like, chicken or the egg, the egg thing. But 
patriarchal beauty standards have made women, I think, very susceptible to the marketing of diets. And now a quick word from our sponsors. Building on the success of the Women's Health Innovation Summit USA, I am delighted to announce that Kisako Research has launched a European version of their Women's Health Conference. This event is taking place on April 26th and 27th in Basel, Switzerland, and will continue the acceleration of innovation and investment in women's health and femtech solutions. Globally, the European women's health market is one of the fastest growing with new technologies, therapeutics, devices, and platforms being developed to improve women's access and quality of care. The summit will bring together the leaders and innovators from Europe and Israel, including big pharma, medical device companies, startups, incubators, and venture funds. The conference wants to drive successful partnerships, showcase leading disruptive solutions, and fuel the growth of these businesses in women's health sector. Their two-day summit is guaranteed to bring value to your business strategy, connections, and growth. To register, go to kasakoresearch.com backslash events backslash women's health innovation Europe. That's Kisako, K-I-S-A-C-O, research.com backslash events backslash Women's Health Innovation Europe. And now back to the interview. Do you think that it's, um, it's generational in terms of, you know, the marketing my mom received influences the way that she talks today? Yes. You know, and so therefore- totally. I, I, my, per, I have noticed a lot of my food issues are actually mom issues. <laughs> so that's why I'm bringing my mom up. A hundred percent. Well, that's really, yeah, it's, you're not alone. Same, um, same. And, uh, it's, it's interesting because a lot of women who are, are, you know, early members of Flourish, they're in their childbearing years. Many have just gotten married and that's why they're in Flourish. It's why they want to approach nutrition, body image, health differently, because they don't want to pass that shit down to their daughters. And I am just here for it. Like I, if we can undo the sort of like intergenerational diet trauma, then I will have lived a meaningful life. (laughs) Ah, well, so I saw on your website that you have these pillars of health. Can you tell us about these pillars of health? Yeah, absolutely. So health I mean, I keep, I guess I keep saying everything is complex, but it's true. Like (laughs) what we're dealing with here is really complex stuff. And health is certainly one of those. Um, health is mental, emotional, social, spiritual. There's also so much that impacts our health that we have, I'll say little to no control over. I mean, like policymaking and, you know, for some of us access to healthcare, right? Like, and I don't want to, I think it's really important that we recognize as a consumer health tech company, that those things exist. And individually, we all have some influence or control over our behaviors. And so the pillars of health are, it's a framework that we use inside of Flourish to ensure that our members are cognizant of the range of behaviors that can positively impact their overall health, specifically mentally, mental and emotional health, or sorry, physical and mental health. So for us, that looks like nutrition and hydration, movement, sleep, stress management, 
community and core values. And so every week we're actually checking in with our members and saying like, hey, how was nutrition and hydration this week? And for us, that's not just about eating salads. It's did you nourish your soul? Did you eat in a way that, again, satisfied your mental and emotional health as well, not just the, the, the salads each week, right? Did you move your body consistently and in a way that makes you feel good? Did you give yourself adequate recovery time in between those workouts, right? Like it's not... It's not the typical, like, did you work out five days a week, 30 minutes a day and get your heart rate within? It's like, let's, let's focus on doing it consistently and in a way that we, you can actually enjoy. And by the way, those two things are one and the same. <laughs> mm -hmm. I am literally in the middle of a epic shift in my mindset because I have only ever in the past lost weight because of starvation, self-induced starvation, yep. binging and purging, or, uh, honestly through drug use. Cause I've yeah. had experience where I've took drugs, lost weight. And so my brain is associated weight loss with yep. these two very poor coping, these two poor strategies and the yep. consequences of drugs and starvation are also like depression, anxiety, and like everything else falls apart, but damn, my belly's a little smaller. Right. And like, yep. that's all I have is reference, but right now I'm actually signed up for personal training. And I have this amazing trainer. Her name is Teresa. Shout out to you, girl. You're changing my life because started in December. And honestly, I only go two twice a week to the gym, which my mind was immediately like, that's not enough. You're not doing yes. enough. And then, um, we would work out and it, I wasn't dying. Like yeah. I left and I could still walk. And like, I was going down the stairs in my apartment and my legs weren't wobbly. And I was like, she's not working me hard enough. I don't know what I'm paying for. Like, this isn't enough. And it dawned on me one week, like, oh, maybe working out doesn't need to be killing myself. Yes. Maybe what we're doing is enough. And now I'm actually starting to see some pounds come off and stuff. But like, and I told her yesterday, this has been the first time I've ever lost weight in the health in a healthy way. And it's mm -hmm. really beautiful because uh, yeah. the consequences of working out in this gentle, nice, consistent, happy way also comes with happiness. Before yes. I used to have to deal with the consequences of depression, anxiety, poverty, lying, you yeah. know, like whatever else comes with that stuff, right? The consequence of this is like, I'm happy and my social life is flourishing and I'm, you know, excited and my skin looks great, you know? So awesome. I, it's really interesting for a lot of women when they were at their quote unquote goal weight or in their, you know, in their smaller bodies that they've been so desperate to try and get mm -hmm. back to we actually pause for a moment and question this idea that weight loss is always good and that being smaller is always better, then you start recognizing, no, wait, I was kind of depressed and like, wait, I wasn't socializing with my friends or I had to go to these unhealthy means to create and sustain that weight loss. And it's like, okay, well, time out. Like, is <laughs> maybe, maybe there's something in between point A and point B that's actually going to be healthy and sustainable for you. Right. Right. Yeah. I um, showed my boyfriend an old picture of me and I said, oh, wow, look how skinny I was there. And initially I was like reminiscing like, oh, you could see my collarbones Oh, And he was like, yeah, you do look really skinny. And I could hear in his voice like it's not cute. And, yeah. and then I remembered that in this photo under my shirt, I actually had some fresh cuts from a razor I had taken to yeah. my stomach because I was so upset with it that I, I would inflict pain that way. Um, and 
I was like, oh yeah. I, and I just was like, this photo is just this epitome of not happy. I was not yeah. happy. I didn't think I was skinny. I still thought I had so much to lose. Yes. So much that I thought I should punish my body physically violently, yes. you know? And now yes. here I am, maybe I'm 20 pounds heavier, but I don't even think about cutting myself. I'm like, what? No, yeah. you know, so it's totally different. I call that looking, looking at your past body through rose colored lenses. Like you just lose, you see the picture. It's often, it is literally a picture that you see Mm -hmm. and you're like, man, I can't believe I thought I was fat then. I should have known. I should have been happy. Like I want to get back there. And it's like, time out. Let's (laughs) not forget you were there and you still weren't happy. So why are you robbing yourself of happiness now by wishing you were back there? And and that, I mean, that is so much of the conversation we have with our members because we get these twisted ideas around weight and our bodies and food and all that. And sometimes you just need a third party to be like, time out, Brittany, like that's BS. I know that's not true because what else was happening in that picture? Yep, for yep, example? That's right. That's absolutely right. Do you think that dieting is a privilege? Sometimes I feel like it's a, uh, you know, I'm, I'm choosing starvation while other women, yeah. are, they can't eat, you know, they don't have the money or the means to. So is dieting a privilege? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I would say yes. And I think you nailed it that <laughs> our bodies don't actually know the difference between dieting and, and being in a famine or, you know, living in a food desert or whatever it is that you want to call it. Biologically, your body and physiologically, your body does not know the difference and it responds in the exact same way, but you're exactly right to choose to not adequately feed yourself when you actually have the means and the access to do so is a privilege. And that's something that, again, it's one of those mirrors that we hold up to, to say like, again, why are we doing this? Like, why are we choosing when we have access and, and privilege of knowing when our next meal is coming from and all of that, why are we choosing to withhold that from ourselves? Especially if what we're after is not actually going to be as fulfilling as we think it is. Same question in terms of nutrition, you just brought up um, uh, food deserts first. Can you define for our listeners, what is a food desert? And then talk about, you know, what about those women that don't have access to salads? Like, is, is there a and discrepancy between, you know, affluent white women's nutritional plan versus a black woman with five kids in a food desert's nutritional plan. Yeah. Let me think about how to answer this. <laughs> I think that for one, the nutrition that I was taught in school studying to become a registered dietitian was very much westernized, very much demonized any cultural foods that were not frankly, like American. Um, and I'm happy to see that the conversation in some parts of, you know, the, the kind of world I work in are changing. Um, because the truth is like so many cultural foods are healthy, right? Thing. Um, where was I going with that thought? I can't even remember. You're talking about food deserts. Yeah. So I, I forget the exact definition of, of food deserts, but essentially a food desert is one in which there is not access to adequate nutritious food. And I forget there's you know specific measures about you know distance to a grocery store and, and things like that. Um, the kind of like flip side of that is this concept of food justice and that everyone 
deserves to have access to high quality, nutritious food. And our food system is, and, and our culture and our society is just not frankly, like set up to support food justice for all. And that is a huge problem that is not completely separate, you know, to the, the work that we're doing. I think there's a, a huge, like, you know, connection there. And, and it's one that I hope that as Flourish grows, we can do more to kind of address by way of whether it's, um, you know, partnering with organizations who really specialize in, in food justice or fighting food insecurity, things like that. Um, but I do believe that in Austin, there are some measures being taken on the local level because that really is what it's going to, to take because this is a like a geographic issue in, in many ways. And we know that there's a lot in terms of, there, there's a lot there's a lot of other issues that are tied to geography, right? That we know redlining, things like that. Um, so there's a, it's, there's a lot more to the, the story there, I guess. My uh, biggest, you know, aha moment with food deserts, I had learned the definition. Okay. It was a public health major. All right. Got yeah. it. But then I was uh, dating this amazing woman in Houston who worked at this nonprofit organization where they literally, their job was to bring vegetables and fruits to schools and teach kids about them. And I was like, okay, Ooh, all right. But then one day she came home and she was like, yeah, so today I brought a pineapple in and the kids had never seen a whole pineapple before. Yeah. And I was like, what do you mean? She goes, well, they knew what pineapple was, but it was because of they were chopped up in plastic containers. You know, yeah. they actually held an entire pineapple with its branch, like, you know, yeah. crown and all that stuff. And that was the first time that I was like, oh, oh, yeah whole pineapples not available like yeah oh it was really interesting I got I got in a little I, I wouldn't say it was a, a Twitter scuffle because I do try to stay away from <laughs> fighting with people on the internet but someone tweeted you know if all McDonald's were replaced with Chipotle we would solve America's like health issues and I was like hold on what <laughs> a burrito bowl and a quarter pounder a burrito bowl is 160 percent the price of a quarter pounder and they've about the same number of calories and the people who are eating so much McDonald's that it's actually affecting their health. Like that 160% matters. You know what I mean? Like to have the privilege to buy a burrito bowl, to have the choice to not be reliant, to have the financial and time privilege to not have to rely on solutions like McDonald's. And by the way, like I am not here, like rooting for McDonald's. <laughs> people it, has, it is low in price it is high variety it provides calories and it tastes good and we can't demonize people for making that choice when we're not giving them the options that they deserve yeah. or the education to to your point right um one more question here about uh flourish you have a podcast why do you have yeah. a podcast i think that's an interesting technique yeah you know, it is interesting. I, I will, again, I'll just be honest here. The podcast was kind of like one of those things that I always thought it'd be cool to have a podcast, kind of like I thought it'd be cool to work for myself. Um, and then the pandemic hit and I, I was at, we, I, so my husband and I were supposed to get married 
right around the time the pandemic hit. So basically our wedding got postponed. I had all this extra time and I was like, shit, I guess I'll just start a podcast. And it's been really fun, you know, as I, I started, you know, in the business as like the one and only coach. And as we've grown, my role has adjusted and I have, I still group do group coaching once a week, but I do have less of that, like one-on-one FaceTime with our, our members. And so the podcast has kind of been a way that my voice has stuck with the brand. And again, like when we look at, you know, the competitive landscape, I guess, if you will, um, we don't see many people. Um, we don't see, I think many company figureheads that will talk about health and nutrition and body image and women's stuff the way that, you know, I and we are willing to talk about it flourish. And so it's been a really um, great way to get to share more about what we believe in the science to, to back it up. Um, and to what I really always try to do is like drive home some like really actionable takeaways, because I also want to provide a resource for people who perhaps don't have, again, like the, the time or money to be a flourish member that they can actually still get something out of the flourish ecosystem. I'll call it. Seriously. That's exactly what I thought too, that the podcast kind of, um, stretches beyond most barriers so that anyone can access yeah. it. And the things you're talking about on your show, I was like, oh my God, I have to listen to this. But like Yay. a few of the ones episodes are like, what to do when your partner doesn't give a fuck about health, uh, staying <laughs> sane in the season of summer bod, um, uh, your body and your job. Interesting. Yeah. How to be yeah, nice to yourself. Yeah. How to be nice to yourself when your body changes, uh, dealing with family diet talk. I was like, I need to listen to all of these. Um, like these are all so relevant. So awesome. But, um, so everyone please go check out what is the show name? Just, is it flourish or called flourish? Yep. Check it out y'all. Um, I do have one more question that I, I realized I wanted to make sure I asked. Yeah. How has, if at all, the pandemic changed women specifically, anything about our body image and diet culture? Has the pandemic had any effect on this? Yeah. So I, this episode went live not too long ago about the impact that Zoom has had on our body image. So highly recommend that as a listen. There's actually, um, not so fun fact, there's a, a new brand of dysmorphia called Zoom dysmorphia. Um, yes. So body dysmorphia is when, you know, the way that you view your body doesn't really align with reality. And it is a very, very common thing, especially for women. With Snapchat dysmorphia, women were bringing their phones, you know, into their plastic surgeon saying, I want to look like this. I want to look like this filtered version of myself. Now with Zoom dysmorphia, women are going in saying, you know, I never noticed this weird thing on my face, but now I do. And I need you to poke, fill, prod, all these things. Um, So being on Zoom and this unusual way of kind of monitoring our appearance for hours and hours and hours on end almost every single day has had a significant impact on our body image and the way that we view ourselves. Wow, that's so crazy. Um, I mean, I had heard some statistics about the scientists seeing peaks in women's stress when they see themselves, their own image on Zoom. Is that part of this? Absolutely. It's just not normal (laughs) (laughs) what we're doing there are studies that show that looking in the mirror for even I think it's like five seconds can elicit negative thoughts and feelings so again just like common sense if you translate that into staring at yourself in the computer in the computer monitor for hours and hours on end it's likely going to have a 
you know, similar impact. And then I would say, you know, a lot of us, our bodies have changed during the pandemic. Our lifestyles have changed. We're under immense amounts of stress. Our eating patterns are different. And that certainly plays a role. It is rarely easy in the culture that we live in to go through the experience of gaining weight in a way that is completely free from negative emotions. And that's certainly been something we support our, a lot of our members through. Um, because at the end of the day, like this is still the body that you're in. And if nothing else, hopefully you can find some feelings of gratitude for this body that has gotten you through the pandemic and, you know, so many other things in life. And even if you don't like the way your body looks, you can still treat it with respect and kindness. And again, engage in long-term sustainable health promoting behaviors. Do you think new shows like Lizzo is coming out with a new show for like big girl dancers? Have you heard about this? I ha- I don't know a lot about it, but I know that it exists. Okay. Uh, I know I don't know too much either, except I saw like an announcement that it's coming out. Do you think things like this are helpful or harmful? Both. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think, I think seeing more types of bodies in media is really important and the comment sections on those, you know, uh, those pieces of media are often really painful to read. Mm -hmm. And so it's both. Um, it's, it's really tough, but, but hopefully, you know, with an increase in exposure and hopefully just an increase in humanity and empathy and all these things, you know, that we can start shifting that conversation and that recognizing that, all bodies are worthy. All bodies are worthy of kindness and respect and that your body size has nothing to do with your character as a person. And, and again, your, your worthiness. I mean, it's just, it is, it's it's an association of lovable. You're more likely to be loved if you're skinnier. That's, I, that's what's the, that's the core belief that I've worked on for years now to get rid of, you know? Totally. Yeah. Um, And, and for many of us, we have like our personal stories that reinforce that belief. And then there's the social stuff, right? The fact that when I turn on my TV and watch an episode of The Bachelor, like no one's bigger than a size six. Yeah, yeah. You know? And And so it's- for love, yeah. Exactly. It's it's really, it's it's complex. And, um, you know, again, I think that we, we can't be like toxic positive, like everyone's beautiful. Like, yes, everyone's beautiful. And there's some really shitty stuff happening in the world and online. And again, like it is, it is more difficult to exist in the world in a larger body. And if you're in a larger body, you still are worthy. You are lovable. You deserve access to inclusive healthcare. You deserve practitioners who treat you with kindness and respect and all those, all those things. Absolutely. Well, Claire, this has been such a fun conversation. And I have two last questions for you that our listeners really love. The first one is if someone wanted to start a femtech company, what's an area in women's health and wellness that you think still needs innovating? Yeah, I mean, I think I've been sort of um, harping on this almost all episode, but I think broadly speaking, just weight inclusive care. Yeah, tell me more. What does that look like? So the contrast of weight inclusive is weight normative, which again, assumes that thinner is better all weight loss is good, things like that. Um, And weight inclusivity recognizes that weight and health may be related, but they they don't exist in a a causal relationship, right? Like 
higher weight doesn't cause poor health, although there may be some relativity there, and that weight is not a behavior, that there are behaviors that impact our weight. And so as healthcare practitioners, we focus on the behaviors, not the outcome of weight. And that, again, regardless of someone's size, we offer them respect, we offer them quality health care, and we treat them like a person, right? You, a, a, a fat person will go to the doctor with an earache and be told to lose weight. And it's just not acceptable. Um, so I think across all matters of healthcare, I would love to see a greater focus on weight inclusivity. Love it. And what do you think the femtech industry as a whole needs the most right now in order to be successful? more funding. <laughs> ah, yes. Tell me more. Yeah. I mean, the, I'm sure you've covered this on the podcast before, but, um, you know, funding for women founders is just dismal, even though I believe we are making strides specifically within femtech. Um, but we live in a world in which, you know, to move quickly, to grow, to advance, to become a great business, especially within within healthcare and within technology, it requires funding. And so if women founders, if minority founders are not on, you know, a level playing field as white men, it's going to be, you know, more challenging for us to get businesses off the ground. And I mean, listen, we're doing it, you know, they're amazing companies in, in the femtech space, amazing company, women-led companies, um, you know, companies led by underrepresented founders that are sort of defying these statistical odds. And that's amazing, but what a shame that it, that it has to be amazing. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Well, Claire, this has been such an amazing conversation, such a great episode. Thank you so much for your time today. Oh, absolutely. This was a blast. Thanks so much, Brittany. Thank you for listening to my interview with Claire Stiegel, the co-founder and CEO of Flourish. To learn more, visit weflourish.com. Don't forget, our listeners get a special offer, one free week on the platform, and a free coaching consultation call. Use the link in the show notes to access this offering. Click the link, create an account, and voila, you're on your way to flourishing. Alrighty, Fem fans, be sure to give the show a five-star review and share it with a friend. Join our virtual community at femtechfocus.org and join the thousands of other femtech founders, investors, and mentors advising and advancing women's health. While in the virtual community, sign up for a Fem Pro membership, only $15 a month, and get access to assets like our Femtech company database and a self-guided Femtech accelerator. Keep an eye out for our monthly Femtech Book Club, which happens the last Wednesday of every month, and subscribe to our newsletter. Last but not least, please consider setting up a recurring donation to Femtech Focus. We are a 501c3 nonprofit and rely on your donations to operate. Okay, Fem fans, until next time, keep innovating because improving women's health and wellness improves everyone's health and wellness.